Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, an associate professor at the American University School of International Service. Thank you all for listening. And today I'll be talking to Norman Solomon about his new book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine, published by the New Press in June of this year. Norman, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thanks for joining me. And having read many of your earlier books on media, it's my pleasure to have this opportunity to talk with you about your latest. And you know, with that in mind, with more than a dozen books written and a life dedicated to progressive activism, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself? What brought you to focus on media, U.S. US foreign policy, and war? I grew up uh, mostly in the D.C. area. And after... Uh, being born in 1951 and coming of age and reading the Washington Post in the early mid 1960s, gradually dawned on me that there was something amiss with the Vietnam War, and it was, so to speak, really educational to to read the Washington Post because I could see that while the media coverage was not monolithic, there was an overall attitude and framework that increasingly, as I learned more, read independently and starting in 1967, started going to anti-war demonstrations, really was askew from other perspectives and information that I was getting. So like a lot of people of uh, my generation, uh, born in the the years and decade or two after uh, World War II, the Vietnam War was really pivotal. It really expanded uh, while a tragedy in Southeast Asia expanded my understanding and perceptions of the world and really of the U.S. government. You know, I'd, I'd grown up in a, a liberal household where, understandably, looking at domestic issues, Hubert Humphrey was a hero. And so literally and metaphorically, learning and seeing what happened to Hubert Humphrey from liberal icon to basically uh, cold warrior during the Vietnam War and all the terrible role that he played. That was, among many other um, events, really eye-opening for me. Thanks, Norman. And, um, you know, it just makes me think a little. I, I remember seeing... Right now, I'm doing some research um, with my research assistant, uh, also a collaborator, um, and we're looking at you know, the way that uh, you know politicians and media talk, have talked about the invasion of Ukraine and comparing to you know the invasion of, of Iraq. And you mentioned Vietnam, um, and I re- recall seeing something where Blinken was referring to you know, aggression and this aggression can't be tolerated. And I just wonder, uh, and I, I want to get back to the book, of course, but I wonder, is it in 
popular circles is the war in vietnam or the invasion of iraq are they understood by american officials and american media as wars of aggression really i think this is so to speak a repetition compulsion disorder that there's an attitude among other things well that was then and this is now there's not really a lasting sort of set of conclusions other than maybe let's do our military uh, adventurism and intervention better next time. One of the tropes was, well, we didn't message well. And of course there was the more on the right wing, the stab on the back, stab on the back sort of thing that the anti-war movement and the media somehow prevented victory, but, you know, more mainstream militarism and uh, democratic party was to take some lessons from it, but the lessons were more about how to better implement intervention rather than there's something wrong with the intervention. Daniel Ellsberg said it really well after releasing the Pentagon Papers. We weren't on the wrong side. We were the wrong side in Vietnam. And I think that's, among other ways to say it, a distinction between the lessons that were taken by mainstream media and politics in the United States from the Vietnam War and the lessons that that should have been taken. You know, another way to say it is it's not that the United States intervened in a maladroit way, but the United States doesn't have a right to, at its pleasure, decide when and where and how to militarily attack other countries. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, thank you, Norman. And uh, maybe this also does lead into the, the second question in, in its own way. Um, you know, I, I imagine you have not seen all of the progress, at least in change that you uh, have sought throughout your, your lifetime um, and the work that you've done. And, you know, when apathy is easy, what drives you to keep active and keep writing about the issues you care about? It's hard to know. Uh, a lot of times, as is the case, I think, with with people who persist in the arts, in political activism, in writing, in research, it's hard to imagine not proceeding. For me, it was, ever since the Vietnam War, an imperative of just not feeling powerless, you know, whatever the realities might be, our power at best individually and even collectively is very limited, but it's really the reverse of what sometimes very sincerely people say is, well, I really don't want to get involved in political activism because it just makes me feel so depressed and powerless. For me, it's really, and I think for a lot of activists and scholars and writers who are trying to challenge the warfare state, it's quite the opposite, that to be passive and simply be spectators as history unfolds is just hard to imagine. It's just not where our lives are at or where we want our lives to be at. So for me, it was probably precognitive. I've just felt... um, felt the need and the desire and a sort of personal as well as macro imperative to be part of changing, so to speak, the world for the better. Thanks, Norman. And 
where do you see, you know, the anti-war movement now? Um, I can say, and and I guess maybe another question, as someone who was actively participating in protests against drone strikes, uh, certainly the larger um, protests are, uh, you know, leading up to the Iraq war, um, you know, as one of the hundreds of thousands in the U.S. and I suppose millions uh, worldwide who were protesting the Iraq war. And, you know, I, I remember President Bush saying, uh, I, I think I have this right on in some speech or statement, you know, he hears us, but he respectfully disagrees or something like that and, and then invaded Iraq anyway. And um, I guess, you know, maybe come back to the question, where do you see the anti-war movement now? And did the, you know, the failure, I guess, if you want to say that, or maybe not you, that if I want to say that, uh, of the protests of the Iraq war, did that have any impact on this anti-war movement? Well, parenthetically, you know, I recall even Nixon after um, the May 4th killings at uh, Kent State and Jackson State, you know, trying to show that he wanted to listen to demonstrators. Obama went through that sort of ritual. It's uh, almost pro forma sometimes. The anti-war movement's really gone through so many ebbs and flows with a lot of different factors. And one is often laid at the feet of electoral politics. And in particular, that when Democrats are in office in the White House, that there tends to be more quiescence. And I I think that there's some truth to that, but there are a lot of other layers as well. And the um, focus on domestic politics, which has been generally really dominant on the left among liberals and progressives and so forth has really taken away the attention, I think unwisely. And Martin Luther King Jr., of course, uh, was denounced for making the connections between U.S. domestic and foreign policy as well as morally speaking. And that sort of paradigm has uh, continued in various guises where we're encouraged to simply continue to focus on domestic issues. It's sort of a modern version. I can't call it Cold War liberalism anymore, maybe Cold War progressivism. And of course, the media coverage is tremendously important in diverting our attention from foreign policy or when there are incontrovertibly important foreign policy stories and war overseas and so forth. The spin, the slant is um, almost routinely so deceptive to take away the culpability and role of the United States to put the halo over the head of Uncle Sam, that is a tremendous uh, factor as well. And even though progressives, we might pride ourselves that we're not influenced by mass media, we are. And there's a, a migration of messaging and so forth, unfortunately, mostly in the direction from corporate media, occasionally from progressive outlets and certainly from organizing into uh, the the mainstream media. Uh, If we were talking even a couple months ago, I would say, yeah, the anti-war movement is really um, on its back or on its heels. The horrors going on now in Gaza have really, I think, awakened, especially among younger people, an understanding and an activism that is challenging U.S. foreign policy, and that's all to the good. It's belated, and certainly better late than never. The 
year and a half plus of U.S. involvement in the Ukraine war, I think, has deserved a lot more challenge, certainly, than it's gotten. Thanks, Norman. And um, maybe sticking here for, for a moment, and without asking you to do an entire history of, of U.S. foreign policy, uh, you know, its relationship with Israel, but um, could you give our listeners some idea of what uh, U.S. foreign policy with Israel has looked like over the, the last uh, few decades and what role the U.S. has or hasn't had as a quote-unquote honest broker in trying to negotiate um, you know, a, a permanent peace or a permanent solution? I don't think the United States has ever been, as a government, an honest broker in the conflict between Israel and Palestinians for many reasons, including uh, domestic politics in the U.S., uh, Zionist pressure, uh, ironically, even in anti-Semitic quarters of the far right, sort of Christian fundamentalists, some of them are both anti-Semitic and pro-Israel for their theological reasons. The United States has, I think, in terms of its so-called national security strata, really seen Israel as a beachhead or a, uh, a base, so to speak, for the U.S. military in the Middle East. There's certainly uh, ethnocentric factors, uh, Judeo-Christian versus Muslim, uh, racial factors, cultural, who can speak English, all that and more. And uh, the net effect, I think, particularly with a turning point after the 1967 war, where the U.S. has been joined at the hip with Israel and the um, protracted so many decades of occupation and suppression of Palestinian human rights has, for the most part, just washed over the media and politics of the country as though irrelevant or okay. Certainly there's been an improvement. You know, There were efforts 30 or 40 years ago to start a couple of Jewish groups. I know the Progressive Magazine promoted back in the 1980s to oppose uh, Israeli oppression of Palestinians. And those groups, uh, noble as they were, really fizzled. They never got uh, sizable. Whereas Jewish Voice for Peace is, is quite a high impact now with thousands of members. And we've seen in uh, recent days and weeks large demonstrations for Palestinian rights from D.C. to New York to Sacramento and elsewhere. So that's encouraging. doesn't change the fact that here we are in the, the latter days of 2023, and uh, you have a bipartisan, if not consensus, very close to it on Capitol Hill, and you have a president unwilling, as we speak, to call for a ceasefire while thousands and thousands of uh, civilians in Gaza have been slaughtered, and this is ongoing, that tells us a lot about the levels, the depths of moral depravity that help to guide U.S. foreign policy. And I think of, for instance, the willingness, eagerness to ship cluster weapons to Ukraine, where 18 months ago, the White House was saying it may well have been a war crime that Russia was using in its invasion and immediately aftermath of it, cluster munitions in Ukraine. 
fast forward to uh, summer of 2023, all of a sudden it's fine for the U.S. to ship its massive uh, inventory of cluster munitions to Ukraine. This is part of the Orwellian doublethink that is is so standard. And uh, of course, we can think of how Biden and Blinken, the former chair of the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee and the chief of staff of that committee, now Secretary of State Blinken, they cheerled, they helped push through with bogus hearings in the summer of 2002, um, helped to bring the Senate to approve the invasion of Iraq. And now we're hearing from them how it's absolutely unacceptable for what they call the rules-based order for Russia to have invaded Ukraine. It's really, we make the rules, we break the rules. Thanks, Norman. And, you know, what you mentioned about cluster munitions also uh, reminds me so, uh, you know, Esther Brita Ruiz, my, my research assistant slash collaborator for, you know, an article we have in Third World Quarterly that came out a few months ago. Um, one of the things we found in comparing media coverage of, uh, in the New York Times of, of Yemen and Ukraine, uh, we found uh, in, in the situation with Ukraine and Russia um, that Russia's use of cluster munitions, as you mentioned, was were condemned in a headline, um, were questioned their um, their legality under international law. And then there was a later headline uh, of Ukraine using cluster munitions against a village. And it said uh, something like, to push back Russians, Ukraine uses cluster munitions on in village or, or something like that. And you know, one of the things we point out in the article is just how one is condemnatory and the other actually provides a rationale for their use. And um, you know, something you mentioned earlier, just about you know the Washington Post. Uh, you know, I did some research on both New York Times and Washington Post coverage of drone strikes in the immediate aftermath, um, and. You know, I, I pointed out to someone in the editorial office for the Washington Post that, um, you know, investigations, including those by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, show that your reporting is inaccurate. You know, do you correct um, your reporting? And the person actually provided an answer in writing that said it's not their responsibility to, to do that. Uh, it would actually be the CIA's responsibility to correct the record. And it's like, you know, the, the CIA is not even admitting to the strikes in Yemen because they're supposedly covert. Uh, and so just the way that, you know, the Washington Post is, uh, and, and the New York Times, um, the way they, either, you know, they, they defer or I don't even know the what, you know, the best word to describe it. So I guess I'm wondering, um, you, know, you already talked a little bit about the way the role the media plays in all of this. Um, but is the media, is it deferential? Is it stenographic? Is it, are the reporters ignorant or is it self-interested? Is it all the above? Um, and in exhibiting any of all these characteristics, how does it present in media coverage? I already maybe provided some examples, but, um, how does this sort of bias prevent, present itself in media coverage of America's wars? It's all of the above, and I think it's a realm uh, quite often where it's difficult to see a solid line between political analysis or media analysis and psychoanalysis. People have mortgages to pay. People want to rise in the profession. How they view this, I think, can vary quite widely in terms of these dynamics. I was lucky enough to become friends with 
Edward Herman, who I miss very much, who passed away a number of years ago, but who, among other things, co-wrote with Noam Chomsky the book Manufacturing Consent. And Ed used to say, there's no such thing as a sincerometer. It's really hard to measure exactly how sincere any particular political or media figure might be, but we do see the results and we see the, through content analysis, the contradictions. And I think as you're alluding to, Jeff, when these contradictions maybe not to put too fine a point on it, often could be called lies, are called to the attention of journalists. The responses really vary. I think there's more of a wall that we hit the higher up in the media food chain we get. And it's uh, maybe not, uh, not much more difficult to get an audience with the Pope than an audience with the editor-in-chief of the New York Times or the Washington Post. They're just in their own elite circles. When we talk, for instance, about the the contrast between coverage of Russian actions and um, what has been going on in Yemen since 2015, the U.S. providing all sorts of military logistical intelligence and political support as the Saudi-led really massacres ongoing uh, in Yemen have proceeded. The UN reporting 400,000 deaths there, you know, massive um, killing of children, the largest uh, cholera epidemic in modern history. And Jeff, I really appreciated the piece that you and Esther Brito Ruiz wrote uh, back in published in August, um, how U.S. news coverage of wars in Yemen and Ukraine reveals bias in recording civilian harm. FAIR did a study, the Media Watch Group FAIR, looked at the data and found that during the ratings-driven or at least uh, ratings-beneficial coverage by MSNBC and Rachel Maddow in particular, year after year, of uh, so-called Russiagate, MSNBC devoted almost no airtime whatsoever while the Saudi-led killing uh, continued in Yemen. And at one level, we might ask, well, gee, that's, that's really odd. Uh, the United States was actually involved in supporting that ongoing massive killing in Yemen. At another level, we could say, it's not only in spite of the U.S. government's involvement. It was arguably because of the U.S. government's involvement. The, the blood was on the hands of Uncle Sam, and that was a disincentive, especially with a Democrat in the White House after Biden came in. But even before that, the designated enemy was Russia. And of course, this was d during Trump, way before the invasion of Ukraine. And that's where, you know, the overlay, I think, of sort of like a um, the Venn diagram overlap of um, adherence to or deference to U.S. foreign policy, what's being said in Congress and the White House, uh, narcissism of a jingoistic nature, racism, ethnocentrism, all of that overlaying together makes this so-called liberal network uh, virtually ignore the U.S. role and the realities of the killing in Yemen. It's really quite 
stunning. And something that in the present day is virtually unremarked upon, and I try to mention it from time to time, is when I drive away from my house and go to work, and this is true for many people, I see Ukrainian flags displayed, which I think you know makes sense, solidarity with the civilians being slaughtered. I can't find any Yemeni flags. I'm not aware of Yemeni flags being displayed. And that is a testament to the power of propaganda in our own country. Yeah, uh, this is something I've, I've thought about and have talked about with others, including a, a Yemeni colleague, um, and got that same sense that, um, you know, other people who are suffering, especially as a direct correlation of U.S. foreign policy or even direct U.S. action, um, can feel um, like abandoned um, when we get behind certain causes and not others. Um, but you know, you know, something you said earlier, Norman, about uh, you, you use the word "wise" uh, made me think of you know, just like the word terrorism um, is has been uh, politicized um, or given political meaning. Um, you know, I was thinking about how. Uh, you know, quote unquote, fake news and 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 disinformation um, also seem to have, you know, a political meaning rather than any actual meaning. Because um, I think about this, um, you know, when the New York Times or the Washington Post reports things like I've referred to, um, and it's completely inaccurate. I mean, isn't that fake news also, or does fake news only apply to uh, Russia's propaganda? <laughs> Well, a lot of layers, I think, that is borne out. We have, even going back to the invasion, say, of Iraq, it wasn't just Fox News and right-wing media. Uh, Really, it was the liberal media that had more impact to clear away doubts. The New York Times, the reporting of uh, Judith Miller and uh, Michael Gordon, who's now reporting for Wall Street Journal on similar issues of foreign policy, but, you know, uh, yellow cake, uranium, aluminum tubes, just fantasies that were presented on the front page as facts uh, would qualify as fake news. And in a political realm, finally, the mass media would start to say and does say now, Donald Trump was telling lies. They would just call it finally lies. And that was, that was a step forward. Unfortunately, it's sort of sequestered to him in terms of coverage. There are lies happening so often that could be called that rather blunt uh, word uh, from members of the leadership of the House and Senate from both parties and coming out of the Oval Office from Biden. But somehow now we're not supposed to uh, ha- have that happen in terms of being uh, called for what it is, calling by its true name. I think, Jeff, a lot of what we're talking about really uh, shakes out as part of paradigms that are long-lasting. These are patterns, and it's certainly driven some of my more recent work in terms of writing and thinking about what are the uh, prototypes that have endured. Yeah, the technology of making war has changed. There's the internet now, there's social media, et cetera, et cetera, cable news that scarcely existed 40 years ago, now has such an important role in driving the kind of media coverage we get on these issues. And yet there are these paradigms that 
have continued that it's really important to identify and see how they persist. Thanks, Norman. And you know, taking that into consideration with your long record of research and writing, um, and you know, again, taking into consideration the evolution of media uh, and, and maybe government propaganda techniques, uh, how have government and media approaches to America's wars evolved and changed? It's sort of that cliche, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The I, I think of the word shape-shifting that these folks are shrewd who run the Pentagon, the PR operations of the State Department and the White House. They're attentive to what works, what doesn't, what used to work, what didn't work. While there may be very similar themes through the years and decades, the learning from experience, for instance, even going back to the Vietnam War, the so-called Vietnamization, in the last three years until the so-called peace treaty, so we're talking 69 to 72, uh, President Nixon kept withdrawing troops from Vietnam. But the U.S. was dropping more bombs on Vietnam than ever. And uh, the head of ABC News, for instance, sent out a memo. You know, the story is not what's happening in Vietnam, in any sort of combat or bombing operations, the story is that our troops are coming home. And while the United States government, uh, taking a page from the first President's Bush, President Bush's uh, gleeful statement that, thank God we've kicked the Vietnam syndrome once and for all, as he put it, right after the uh, bombing-driven uh, Gulf War in 1991, the troops did go into Afghanistan. They did go into Iraq. Uh, on its own terms, the political system found that um, not a really satisfying result after many, many years in Afghanistan and almost as many in Iraq. But Raytheon and Boeing and Northrop Grumman, these huge military contractors, they never lose a war. But there have been a, you know, constant adjustments being made. And I think in the last several years under the Biden administration with the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan, it's more than ever from the air. We're above it all. We send in the drones. We bomb. We have special operations uh, forces through secret activities in many countries, joint military training, uh, particularly in Africa, for instance, with the um, militaries in many, many countries. And so these are still, especially from a, a messaging and propaganda standpoint, very uh, ongoing, very constant, and then applied, you know, by extension, you could say, given the military support, as I note in the book, extraordinary commitment of $35 billion with a B dollars over a 10-year period committed, locked in from the U.S. to Israel, and now more being appropriated, you know, staggering amounts of money for the Israeli military. And you could say, and, you know, the title of my book, War Made Invisible, has a subtitle, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Arguably, the Israeli military is part of the U.S. military machine. It's certainly been funded and supplied that way. And then when I look at the table of contents of the book, 
many of these chapter titles, these themes of how the messaging for war, for the warfare state, all continues. It's completely applicable to the kind of messaging we're getting from the White House, from Congress, and from U.S. media as the Israeli government is involved in just the wholesale slaughter of civilians in Gaza as we speak. Uh, for instance, these chapter titles sort of give an idea. Repetition and omission, what's put in, what's left out. Unintended deaths, how it spun that if predictably the U.S. or the uh, Israeli military uh, kills civilians, the claim is it's unintended, even though it's completely predictable. Uh, the military commanders and their political bosses know full well that many, many civilians will die, and lives that really matter, lives that don't. Of course, that's not explicitly stated. It's a reality of U.S. foreign policy for many reasons and many techniques, and it's a reality of how um, not only how Israel is proceeding with its military actions, but how um, Biden and the so-called leadership in Congress try to justify what Israel is doing. Thanks, Norman. And you know, that, that brings me, you know, back to the title, um, you know, "War Made Invisible: How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine." And um, you know, we got right into our, our conversation, um, but I do like to, uh, you know, ask authors about the title and covers of their book. Um, were the things that you, you know, you were just describing, uh, or things we've already talked about? Uh, did this all go into? Um, you know, how you came up with the title uh, of your book. And, um, you know, because I'm thinking about some of the research on what some might describe as America's new way of making war, uh, you know, the the sort of invisible or technological uh, precision, you know, all the adjectives, uh, you know, we, or nouns we can think of that are used to describe uh, U.S. actions. Um, and so when, when you say war made invisible, um you know, I assume that you know this is does not refer to uh, just recent technological advancement. Advancement. So, what does uh, "war made invisible" mean, and what does it refer to? Uh, and I'm sorry, I know you've already kind of got into this, but um, and also, did you contribute to the cover design of the book? Um, and is that a image created or an actual image of a bomb of bombs raining down? The title really turned out to be the first words I wrote of the book, "War Made Invisible." And initially, I thought of it as sort of a sequel title to a previous book I wrote that came out a couple of years after the invasion of Iraq, War Made Easy. As I thought about it, though, it's not just that there's more war, that it's continued, but that to some significant degree, and more and more in recent years, there's been a shift in the visibility, the awareness, the presentation of both those wars and the impacts at home. So War Made Invisible seemed to me to capture a lot of those multi-level realities. Part of it is, as we were talking about, uh, fewer boots on the ground. So the air wars are almost by definition far less visible to the U.S. public. So there are no scenes or very few scenes of the injured troops coming home, the loved ones grieving, all of that sort of drama, real life human drama that 
was so present in media and in politics uh, during the combat of U.S. troops in Afghanistan and Iraq. There's very little of that now. And there are special operations. There are occasionally Americans killed in combat in Syria or in Africa or elsewhere. But it's very low level in terms of media coverage, very little of that. At the same time, I think the increasing, um, to use an odd word, normality of war has had enormous effects. It's become, so to speak, the, uh, the wallpaper on the media echo chamber. It's, it's, it's gone into the woodwork of the echo chamber. And so there's very little reason for people to be aware of the ongoing warfare or its effects. It's like the cliche, um, it's kind of like white noise or the fish in the water, what is water, we're used to it all the time. And then there's what Martin Luther King Jr. described, not only as the madness of militarism, the atmosphere socially, but what he described as the demonic destructive suction tube of funneling vast resources away from human needs to uh, astronomical budgets. And so we have the Pentagon budget going through the roof every year, Congress giving more than Biden even asked for, which was an increase. And that's normal. So we really don't see it as anything worth talking about or raising our eyebrows about from a media standpoint, it becomes the uh, dog bites human story, not the human bites dog story. So it's just so normal. And um, yet the impacts are so huge. And even if there's reporting of what Chomsky and Herman called uh, victims without victimizers, there's huge coverage of um, problems with healthcare, with the society falling apart, with education, so many different ways, but the connections are not made. And so the militarism, the, the, the spending on the military, which is so astronomical, the 850 billion with the B dollars annual Pentagon budget doesn't include other spending like nuclear weapons. So that is uh, so normal that the connections between the lack of healthcare, education, housing, infant care, elderly care, end of life care, the uh, environmental protection funding that's needed and lacking, the libraries that aren't open, the schools that are begging for funding, all this and more is going on. And the connections are invisible between that and massive military spending. Thanks, Norman. And does, does the terms that we use also matter um, or, or contribute to this uh, making the human toll invisible? And you know, what I'm thinking about you know, is, is some of the euphemistic language. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's, a, a, there's a genocide study scholar uh, from, I think it was published probably early 80s, um, who said, you know, war is an instrument of foreign policy. Genocide is the uh, handmaiden of the totalitarian state. And so first there's this idea that war is normal um, and that, you know, Western democracies don't commit 
uh, genocide, but they do occasionally engage in in war. Um, you know, there's a, an, another scholar who talked about how um, you know the importance of intent to the crime of genocide, and um, you know when Western states, as the quote unquote civilized states, engage in war, their goal is to avoid civilian casualties rather than um, than kill civilians. Uh, and that also then just reminds me of something uh, Dirk Moses wrote in uh, his book now, I guess it's about a couple years ago, um, on the problems of genocide, where he asks, you know, a pretty straightforward, simple question. What is the experiential difference uh, between a victim of genocide and someone who's quote unquote collateral damage? Um, and so I, I guess I'm wondering where these euphemisms come in and also this idea that some victims are more worthy uh, than others, which of course does uh, in some ways refer back to uh, Herman and Chomsky's worthy and unworthy victims. It's so routine. It's so built in simply the, the magnitude, the volume, the tone, the tenor, the vividness or absence of all the above in media coverage of particular wars and the echo effect back and forth between media and what the president is saying and prominent members of Congress. And they, they're reference points for each other and they magnify each other's impacts and so forth. And what we've been discussing in terms of the, the biases come into play in terms of uh, national so-called national security priorities, the elites, what they have decided to emphasize or not, who matters, who doesn't, what lives matters, what don't, what bloody shirts to be waved, what to be ignored, and all of that. You're reminding me that through the history of the nuclear arms race, there was some assumption that because the United States had these strong elements or some elements of democracy, the U.S., as a government would be more restrained in its role in the nuclear arms race compared to, say, the Soviet Union. And as the historians Roy and Zoris Medvedev wrote more than 40 years ago in The Nation magazine, that actually was not the case. Uh, As repressive as the Soviet Union was, they were not as irresponsible as the United States democracy in every step of the nuclear arms race. And arguably, that's been true to, to today. I mean, that's the ultimate genocide is nuclear weapons of its omnicide. And yet uh, the United States in this century has canceled the Open Skies Treaty, the INF, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, uh, the ABM Treaty. That has been done uh, by uh, Bush in terms of ABM and then uh, Open Skies and INF uh, by Trump. And the Biden administration has basically done nothing to restore. I mean, all those three treaties, bilateral mostly with, in most cases, with uh, with Russia, with the Soviet Union and now Russia, has, uh, have been killed by the U.S. And uh, Biden and company don't bother to do anything about it, uh, just letting this omnicidal arms race get worse and worse. And whether it's the word genocide or terrorism, I fear, again, it's a, it's a rhetorical football. And uh, it is, again, an Orwellian zone. We ought to uh, prevent terrorism. We ought to prevent genocide. 
when we don't have a single standard of human rights, when we don't have a single standard of language, then it all becomes uh, jumbled into manipulation. Um, imagery, of course, uh, is important. The, the video we get, the photographs, uh, I, I think, as I mentioned in my book, Susan Sontag has a good point that showing the suffering is important, but the frame, the assumptions behind the suffering um, can make a pivotal difference in how people even see a video or see a picture of suffering. Does it mean the United States should be more involved because people are already suffering? We need to get the job done or depending on the narrative and frame of mind, does it mean that uh, this war needs to stop? And uh, speaking of imagery, uh, Jeff, I'm remembering that I, I didn't respond to the part of your question about the cover of this book. So I guess I ought to mention that. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a word person, so images don't come to mind first or second, but you know, it does matter. And when I got the first iteration of a cover for War Made Invisible, it showed these weapons exploding in a dark sky and underneath was sort of a uh, little boxes uh, construction, like almost a monopoly game of little houses, suburban houses. And I thought, well, this doesn't really work because it seems like U.S. suburbia is being bombed. So anyway, there was a back and forth and finally came up with the current uh, cover, which does show what I believe um, are sort of tracers of bombs dropping uh, from the sky, actual photograph that was adapted. And there's sort of a cloud coming down from them, beginning to make the words were made less visible. So it is sort of an imagery that way. Okay. Thank you, Norman. And um, yeah, so I, I wanted to read... Um, you know, a couple excerpts, um, you know, from your book before we finish up. And, um, you know, the first comes from, from page 34 and you write, quote, no matter how sophisticated it's high tech weaponry, the large scale Russian warfare in Ukraine was barbaric. That the same could also be said about American warfare in Afghanistan and Iraq was a truth nearly taboo to utter in U S mass media. Both the United States and Russia had brazenly flouted international law crossing borders and persisting with massive lethal force. As I uh, you know, referred to a little earlier, my research collaborator Esther and I are working on you know, a comparative study of political and media discourse on U.S. invasion of Iraq and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And part of its origin is in what I at least remember to be obvious differences in how these respective invasions have been discussed. So much of the discourse on Russia's invasion emphasizes the idea that for international law to have any meeting, um, you know, the international order, international law, and so on, Putin must be held accountable. You know, as you point out in your book, Bush has been, and this is the term I use here, but fully rehabilitated. Uh, you know, of course, there's the uh, episode of Ellen that, that that is commonly referred to. Um, you know, and you know, Bush being a, a painter now and sharing you know candy with Michelle Obama and so on. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on the utility of international law and international institutions, at least as it comes to um, accountability for the United States? It's a great idea. You know, international law is what it reminds me of what uh, we're told Gandhi was asked, Mahatma Gandhi, 
uh, was presented with the question, Mr. Gandhi, what do you think of Western civilization? And he replied, I think it would be a good idea. In the case of international law, I think it's very important and as very flawed as the United Nations is with so much power vested in the Security Council and so forth and the General Assembly rendered fairly powerless, still the UN has the potential and there's really a need. I mean, there's always been a fraud uh, associated with, uh, if not always, you know, maybe after World War II, not initially, but there's been uh, routinely a fraud going back to the incredible racism and imperial preferences of Woodrow Wilson with the League of Nations, even though that was a good idea. But you have that mixture, and that's international diplomacy of really good ideas and imperatives and just you know out-and-out manipulation for maximum international leverage. Been of limited uh, impact. I mean, the United States, unfortunately, normalized torture after 9-11, uh, made it much harder to restrict or give even a... Uh, uh, an example to push back against torture by other regimes or want, or reckless and uh, cruel bombing of populations. The U.S. has set the pace to not be a member of the, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and yet to demand that some foreign leaders be brought to justice for, for war crimes. Uh, there was a lot of fear that for instance, in Britain, I even heard the BBC discussing it, that uh, Tony Blair might need to worry about traveling overseas because what happened to the fascist dictator from Chile, Augusto Pinochet, might happen to him. And uh, you know, there was some fear that Henry Kissinger had, but you, there needs to be the enforcement. And of course, that's been tough. So I think the ideal of international law is really something to to strive for if it can be uh, uniformly rather than hypocritically implemented. Thanks, Norman. And I, I'm wondering uh, what you think about are, are, are things like people's tribunals? I mean, you could look at Vietnam. Um, you know, there have been different ones uh, for the Bush administration um, and, and others beyond that as well, uh, including some, I believe, in a Latin American context. Um, are these you know, do these serve anything more than a symbolic purpose? I think they're worth trying. You know, the famous Bertrand Russell Tribunal during the Vietnam War. Um, Russell, he was one of the towering figures of integrity. And he was, of course, vilified and so forth. But the, the Russell Tribunal really ex helped to expose what the U.S. was doing in Vietnam. I think of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War organization and the Winter Soldier investigation and hearings that occurred in the United States toward the tail end of the Vietnam War, also very important. And there have been a number of uh, efforts going on. As a matter of fact, uh, this autumn, there are uh, tribunal. there's a tribunal effort that's going to examine the role of military contractors. I always try to remind people they're not defense contractors, they're military contractors. Um, and uh, 
putting on trial places like Raytheon, of course, we don't have any enforcement uh, technique or possibility, but I think it's, it's something in the toolkit that can be used well. Thanks, Norman. And, uh, you know, going back, uh, again to the, the title of your book, um, you know, what are the costs of war? Uh, and, you know, many might immediately think about the material costs. Uh, I, I've, I know there was the, uh, Iraqi body count project, um, with the invasion of Iraq. Um, and, you know, it's, we do commonly uh, at least try to keep track of or calculate the number of people whose lives are lost. Um, but uh, you know, the other human costs must also be accounted for. And so what, what are these often invisible costs of war? Uh, I know you mentioned uh, the historic, uh, for that almost sounds like it's a good thing, but the, the cholera outbreak in Yemen. Um, so uh, other than the deaths associated with the use of force, um, what are the human costs of, of wars uh, in you know, the U.S. Uh, from starvation, preventable disease, and so on? Overseas, we get very little discussion at home about those costs. You know, often the U.S. Uh, directly or indirectly responsible for the destruction of infrastructure, sanitation, um, decimation of the social fabric, the trauma, the PTSD, uh, what has been done to people psychologically, uh, terrorized. And then when we look at what's happening in the United States, what are the effects of having literally millions of men trained to learn how to kill and they come home? You take the men out of the military, do you take the military out of the men? Well, maybe in most cases, but there is a proclivity of violence. I cite in the book studies showing much more domestic violence from uh, veterans and especially combat veterans. The effect of PTSD at home, you know, tremendous effects. The acculturation to violence in general. Uh, you might say the, the moral and spiritual corrosion. What comes through in the media? What happens when people come home and they can't shake their own memories? What about the Pentagon's 1033 program that provides gratis military equipment and weaponry to police forces around the country. You know, Black Lives Matter protesters were facing off against Pentagon weapons that had been provided for free to police forces around the country. The militarization just has so many different dimensions to it. And it brings me back to what Martin Luther King Jr. called the madness of militarism. This is just unacceptable to address among the elites in Congress, uh, the person in the White House, a mass media in general. Militarism is not confronted, it's embraced when it's U.S. militarism. Thanks, Norman. And, and you know, as we're getting closer to the end here, I want to ask you, uh, you know, I guess it's a maybe a fairly large question. Um, is the U.S. still at war? Uh, you know, whether officially or unofficially, is is the quote unquote war on terror still active? Um, you know, some might point to the 1980s during Reagan as being the last time the U.S. was not at war, but uh, there was 
if we're going to say that, there were definitely numerous uh, ad- adventures, if you will. Um, so for you, when was the last time the U.S. was not at war? I know that's a, a few questions uh, tied together. but Sure. Well, Reagan um, was maybe dealing with the uh, so-called Vietnam syndrome, but still uh, gearing up, invasion of Grenada, 1983, invasion of Pan- Panama, bigger morsel for the imperial appetite, 1989 under the first President Bush. So they were gearing up. You know, you could sort of see it on a graph. Vietnam War, tremendous, you know, as Nick Terse and others have documented, tremendous firepower, murderous from the skies, killing several million people in Southeast Asia. And then you had this lull under Carter. And then we had this gear up, a little island, 83, Panama, 89, the Gulf War, a tremendous leap forward in militarism and slaughter from the air. The Pentagon saying in six weeks, 100,000 Iraqi people killed in early 1991. Uh, Ticker tape parade, Norman Schwarzkopf, Colin Powell, 1989 or 1999 under President Clinton, uh, 78 straight days of bombing U.S.-led bombing of Kosovo and Yugoslavia by NATO, not a single American killed. A glorious, according to Bill Clinton and mass media, triumph of the U.S. And then, of course, into the so-called war on terror, Afghanistan, Iraq, and uh, Yemen, Syria, Somalia, many other countries. As we speak in uh, towards the end of uh 2023, according to the Cost of War Project at Brown University, at the same time that Biden was telling the world at the UN two years ago that the United States was no longer at war, the United States was involved in the so-called war on terror in 85 countries with all sorts of counterinsurgency and joint efforts with other militaries, drone strikes, bombings, special operations. It's a illusion and a delusion that U.S. mass media on the whole really uh, play into that the United States isn't at war. You know, as a matter of fact, I I quote in the book a report from Reuters news service a year or so ago saying that uh, Biden was presenting a peacetime budget. You know, that was their their term, uh, the news service. It's a peacetime budget. The United States was at war in many countries, but it's become so normalized that it's um, we're sort of anesthetized to it, and we're not really far from war is peace from 1984. Orwell's sort of uh, uh, formulation of the you know the ultimate doublethink that we're at war, but we're not at war. It's really at peace. This is shifting though, because of the Ukraine war, and now the war in the Middle East, the United States more and more active and uh, all the more reason for pushback by people who don't want to go along with the madness of militarism. Thanks, Norman. And I think that, you know, in its way brings us to the last question, which, you know, in some ways refers also back to the the question about, um, you know, fighting apathy. Um, you know, as we conclude, you're, you quote, James Baldwin, in your final sentence of your book, quote, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. 
what does this mean to you in, in, in the context of your book? And, you know, in the face of, uh, you know, political and, and media propaganda, will we ever truly face that which needs to be changed? It's certainly a challenge, you know, individually in the society in a huge way. And often I think of mass media as a de facto fog machine. What do media outlets, mass media generally tell us to do? Well, they tell us to go out and buy things, and that includes uh, NPR and PBS and so forth, ostensibly non-commercial, and to maybe go out and vote once in a while. And for all the reasons we've been discussing for the last hour, the fog really obscures the realities of U.S. foreign policy and what they mean to people, human beings overseas, and really here at home. The, um, the poet William Stafford wrote that every war has two losers. And certainly the people at the end of U.S. firepower, they are by far the biggest losers those at the end of weapons coming from anywhere that are being fired. At the same time, our own society in the United States is so undermined, so corrupted. Our view of the world and our ability to make well-focused assessments of what our priorities really are and what they should be, it's very corrosive in terms of what is actually our status quo. So we have, um, we have the opportunity and the challenge. And uh, as always, it's, it's difficult to do what's most worthwhile. Really, as I think Noam Chomsky has said very clearly when asked, hey, what difference does all this make? He said, I think, um, quite astutely, it's true, we could put all of our energy, all of our lives into changing this or that, and we might have no effect. But if we don't strive to make a better world happen, for sure we won't help that to occur. Thank you, Norman. Um, yeah, you know, one thing I, I tell my, my students is, uh, especially when you know, feel how or see how challenging all of this is and, and how much energy and, and how exhausting it can be that, um, you know, especially at the local level, if you change one person's life in some way for the better, um, then you've made a difference. And I think, um, you know, thinking small, um, and then sort of like rippling outward, um, you know, can, can help, um, you know, people kind of not feel like what they're doing has, has no meaning or, or isn't having an impact. So, um, yeah, thank you. Um, you know, this has been a, a sobering conversation, but one that I've greatly enjoyed. And, uh, so thank you so much for joining me. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Um, and you know, before I do let you go, um, is there anything that you're working on right now that our listeners can, can keep their eye out for, um, whether it's another book or, or anything else you're writing? Well, I'm trying to write, uh, hopefully, useful articles about the current conflict in uh, Gaza and Israel and the Middle East, as well as about what's happening in Ukraine. And so those articles are running often on Common Dreams and other websites. Okay, great. Um, for those, uh, yeah, commondreams.org, uh, if you're looking there. And uh, um, yeah, thanks again, Norman, and take care. You too, and thanks for all you're doing.